2: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. We live on the surface of a sphere that's almost unimaginably vast. Beneath our feet, there are thousands of miles of rock subject to unimaginable pressures and heat surrounding an iron core. Unlike the oceans or even outer space, we basically cannot directly explore the interior of our planet or any other. So how do we know what our planet is made of when it was formed, how the moon got hung in the sky? That's what Johns Hopkins planetary scientist Sabina Stanley's new book is about, ranging from Mercury to Neptune. It's called What's Hidden Inside Planets, and she'll take us on a tour of the solar system after this news. Welcome to Forum, I'm Alexis Madrigal, and it is so good to be back live with you this morning. Today, let's start with the moon. We know the rocky body that orbits our own planet, but how did it form? In her new book, Planetary Scientist Sabina Stanley narrates the story. In the distant past, a Mars-sized object crashed into the Earth, tossing up an enormous mass of material into space. Over what scientists estimate was just a few weeks, something like 40 days, the proto-moon would have coalesced into a rough sphere much closer to Earth than it is now. That would have meant that it looked huge in the sky, even more charismatic than a full moon now. As we start a new year here, there's something to considering these primary elements of life in the solar system. And Sabina Stanley is going to take us on a tour of the new science of our own planet and our neighbors. Stanley is a professor of planetary science at Johns Hopkins University and the author of What's Hidden Inside Planets. Welcome to the show, Sabina.
3: Thanks so much. Happy to be here.
2: Yeah. So I have to admit that I would long found the moon very beautiful, but kind of boring. <laughs> I never really thought it had that much to tell us about much of anything. But you changed my mind. So talk to me a little bit about the moon.
3: Oh well, I'm great. It's great to hear that I changed your mind. I think the coolest thing about the moon is because it essentially formed from the Earth. That the moon, it's basically Earth with just a little extra bit of Earth that we can go and study hmm. and. On Earth, we you know we have lots of access to stuff on Earth, but one thing we don't have a lot of access to on Earth is what was Earth like 4 billion years ago, let's say. And that's because on the surface of the Earth, we have plate tectonics, and that recycles the surface into the interior. So the surface of Earth is really young. But you go to the Moon, which doesn't have plate tectonics, and so that surface is really old. So when we go and we, we look at craters on the Moon, we study what the rocks are on the Moon, we are seeing what the Earth was like 4 billion years ago or so. Mm-hmm. As we just can't do that on Earth itself.
2: When did we sort of figure out that the moon wasn't some body the Earth captured in our, you know, gravitational field or, uh, or that, you know, how did, when did we figure out how it was
3: formed? Yeah, great question. So it turns out that you have to kind of bring in a lot of pieces of information to realize that the only way to explain the sort of the, the evidence we see is with this uh, giant impact in the past. So things like what the orbit of the moon is, what the moon is made of, the fact that it has the same sort of isotope signatures as the earth does really tells us that the material in the moon is the material of the earth. So it couldn't have just been captured from uh, some like nearby planet that came by. Uh, And so there's lots of evidence like that. The fact that the moon has a really small iron core at the center, Uh, Makes sense when you think of if there was a giant impact, most of the mantle material from the impactor in the Earth went out to make the moon. So very little iron Mm -hmm. from the core. So all of uh, the the data we have, the evidence we have today, when you're trying to explain it, the best explanation we have is that there was a giant impact with something about Mars size uh, really early in the solar system.
2: Mm, That image you had, too, of just... You could, I mean, assuming humans would not have been obliterated, which of course they would have been, and assuming humans could have existed that far back in evolutionary time, uh, which of course didn't happen. But had there been, if we are able to put our minds back on that developing Earth, we would have actually seen this like coalescence in the sky, yeah?
3: Yeah, that blows my mind whenever I think of that. This was not a long process. You know, in geology, when we talk about planets, we think about things that are on millions of years' timescales. But no, the moon would have formed in like 40 days. It's incredibly <laughs> fast.
2: so amazing. Um, talk to me a little bit, just stepping back to the solar system as a whole. How did we get the particular set of sort of planets and asteroid belt and, and other components of our planetary system that we now have?
3: Yeah, great question. So, it's all about how what happens when you have a sun forming at the center of the system and a gas of uh, a disk of gas and dust surrounding it, right? So the our solar system formed when a uh, part of a molecular cloud made up of most of hydrogen, maybe some like dusty elements like silicon and stuff like that, it started collapsing. And as it was collapsing, it was spinning, and that caused the sun to form at the center and this disk of material to form around it. And gravity helped a lot in bringing material closer and closer together in that disk. And so that's how you started forming planets. But there was a time early in the solar system uh, when the planets, you know, there were bodies maybe about 100 kilometers Hmm. or so um, in diameter. And there were lots of them and they were just all moving around. And so there were lots of collisions of those. Uh, and so those collisions actually caused lots of stuff to happen. It caused ejection of some planets out from uh, the solar system. And it also caused coalescence. Like billiard
2: balls just got hit and yeah. just bounced out of yeah, there?
3: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So there are planets that we flung out of the solar system where we flung out very far away. But the ones that are left, they're now kind of in these stable orbits. We don't get hit very often by things that are huge, right? We do get hit by smaller mm-hmm. Uh, meteors and things like that. But that's how we got to where we are today. Oh,
2: man. And why did Pluto get bounced? (laughs) Conceptually, at least, um, out of being a planet?
3: You know, this is a question I get asked a lot, and I want to reframe it. Pluto was so cool and had to completely (laughs) change our mind about how planets formed uh, that Pluto has now started its own category of object. It is a dwarf planet. And so basically... It's, it's made us realize that there are more than, we have to be more careful in how we define things. And, and Pluto, along with Ceres, which is an asteroid in the asteroid belt, and a bunch of other objects, they get to make up this whole new category because they're just so unique.
2: And it's basically, we said, though, all right, you didn't like clear the path like you didn't clear your orbit of other things There's other things that are sitting around there. You're too small. Like there are a whole there was a series of kind of elements <laughs> of this algorithm that went into saying, OK, you're no. Yeah, you're no longer absolutely.
3: Real OK, absolutely.
2: Um we're talking about the inner workings of the solar system with Dr. Sabina Stanley, author of the new book, What's Hidden Inside Planets. We want to hear from you. We know there's a lot of kids at home this week. Maybe one of you has a question. You know, what do you want to know about the solar system or if you could go somewhere in our solar system outside the earth? where would you go you can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org you can find us on all the social things or you can give us a call we love hearing kids on the radio 866-733-6786 that's 866-733-6786 uh sabina the conceit for this book is that basically all the planets tell us different things about the stuff of our solar system because each one kind of tells us something about the conditions that existed when it formed so like how does knowing something about mars or jupiter inform our understanding of, of the earth
3: yeah great question so i like to think about families when i talk about this right like everyone says you know when you you, you look at say your mom or your dad or your sister or brother and so forth And there are certain things you share in common with them, right? And and you know that that's because you share sort of genetic material or you shared an environment growing up. And it's the same thing with planets. All the planets kind of grew up in the same neighborhood. There were a bit of differences, right? The planets closer into the sun had a hotter environment. Those farther out were colder. Um, But the building blocks, the like the genetic stuff, was roughly the same in certain areas. So when we study Mars or we study Mercury, we're basically studying close- relatives of earth that had the similar genetics and a similar environment they were growing up in of course they had different life experiences some of them got collided more and and so forth so there are differences between the planets but uh just in the same way that you can learn a lot about yourself by looking at your family members Mm -hmm. you can learn a lot about earth by looking at the Mm -hmm. other planets
2: let's talk about your family i mean the book starts (laughs) in your hometown uh, sudbury ontario right which you call a quote geologist dream landscape um, why was it a dream landscape? And do you think you were sort of nurtured into going into planetary scientists from growing up in such a place?
3: Yeah, I love talking about Sudbury. So Sudbury is just this this amazing location. So about 1.8 billion years ago, a giant meteor impacted into the Earth at the location of Sudbury and create, created a huge hole. And from that hole, material deep from deeper inside the Earth came up. Uh, And created this giant melt pool and it brought up a lot of resources, a lot of things that we actually mine and use today like nickel. Uh, And so Sudbury became a mining town because of the fact that there was this huge crater formed. Over a billion years ago, and that's what caused this city essentially, eventually, many, many billion billions of years later, to be formed. Wow. So, in, in one sense, that's what made Sudbury really um, unique. From as a planetary scientist, it's also a place there are so many rocks exposed. There, I was about to say, do, could you like yeah. tell
2: that growing up that there'd been a big impact?
3: So, you similar to when you wherever you grow up, you think whatever your experience was were normal, right? And so, when you go to other places, when you realize that no, that wasn't normal, but yeah, like. I knew Sudbury was a rocky place, but I didn't recognize how rocky until I got to sort of the U.S. and other areas like that. But also the rocks there are different. So there's lots of signs in the rocks that they used to be that there was this big collision in the past now as a ge- geologist when you go to sudbury now you can see those signs there are things called shatter cones where you see basically like a a splash pattern on rocks because of the shock wave that came from the the wow. uh, meteor impact but as a kid you don't notice those things you're just like oh yeah another cool rock there's rocks everywhere oh but gosh. it was a really important location actually um for the apollo missions to train ast- astronauts who were going to the moon they actually came and trained in sudbury to go look around and learn what kind of rocks they wanted to look for on the moon, because we were really interested in rocks formed from impacts when the Apollo astronauts went to the moon. Oh, my
2: gosh. So, they, <laughs> I mean, where is Sudbury? For for those of us who are less familiar with Canadian geography <laughs> and, Yeah, and yeah, did not question. just rapidly Google, um, where where is it?
3: Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll explain it in a few different ways. Although it's said to be part of northern Ontario, it's not that north. Uh, it's about 400 kilometers North of Toronto. If you're familiar with Toronto, um, it's, if you can picture where all the great lakes are in the middle of the continent, it's Mm -hmm. just at the tip of the great lakes, just to the right of them. So of where they are. So that's where Sudbury is.
2: That's so interesting. And that's where you got your start doing planetary science too. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think growing up, I didn't really understand the uh the importance of Sudbury mm-hmm. uh at for two planetary scientists growing up i just thought hey yeah this mm-hmm. is just a place i grew up <laughs> um and it wasn't until i got to grad school at harvard and i remember people asking me where i was from and i would say like oh just this small town in northern and all Montana. the nerds
2: would be like i'm so
3: jealous <laughs> <Exactly>. i just <laughs> they'd be like oh i was there last month for a conference did <laughs> you see the shatter cones on this rock and stuff and i was like whoa apparently i grew up somewhere pretty important that's and amazing had no
2: We're talking about the inner workings of the solar system with Dr. Sabina Stanley, the author of the new book, What's Hidden Inside Planets. We're going to get to some of your calls after the break. We know there's kids home from school. What questions do you have about the solar system? Or if you could go somewhere in the solar system, where would you go? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can email Forum at kqed.org or you can go check out our digital community on Discord relaunching today. I'm Alexis Madrigal staging for more right after the break.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal, just shaking off the holiday rust. We're talking about the inner workings of the solar system with Dr. Sabina Stanley, the author of the new book, What's Hidden Inside Planets. Um, Sabina, we have a great first question here. Um, Let's go to uh, Sean in Sebastopol.
0: Welcome. Hi. Hey, Sean. My question is, uh, scientifically, is it proven that the that the core is iron and if so or is it just a hypothesis and what's the probability of correctness that it's iron in yeah. earth yeah
2: love that sean thank you uh, so much for that question let's talk about the core of the earth
3: <laughs> yeah it's a great question and it turns out that we know that it's iron from a variety of different ways of getting to that answer one thing we can't do is go to the center of the earth and pick up some of it and bring it to the surface and confirm, yes, it is iron. So we have to use other information. And so I'm gonna tell you the big ones that tell us, yeah, it's gotta be iron. So first of all, um, from the mass of the earth and from gravity measurements, we can tell what the density of the material is inside the core. So we know that the core has to have a particular density or mass and it's the density or mass of iron. So that's the first Mm -hmm. hint that it's gotta be iron. Um, But there are some other things that have similar mass, so maybe it's something else, right? Uh, The second piece of information we have is my favorite one, is that we have lots of meteorites, and iron meteorites happen to be some of the most common meteorites that we have. Now, these meteorites come from the cores of other planets or planetary bodies that got broken up, and part of them came to Earth at some point. So we can kind of see the cores of other bodies. So we don't see cores made of say gold or, or aluminum or other things that might be kind of uh, that you might think that could be there. So there's tons of iron meteorites. Oh, so that's- Can tells you imagine us- if there
2: were gold meteorites just raining? Down. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. The world would be very different. But uh, so that tells us that, for example, if the cores of all these other bodies are iron, then it's probably makes sense that the cores of earth is iron as well. And then the third piece of evidence, the big one um, is that, uh, we happen to know that there should be a lot of iron in the material forming the planets. And the reason for that is stars, like the sun, the way they create elements is through fusion in their cores. And so they create more massive and massive elements. They go from hydrogen to helium, all the way you know through carbon, nitrogen, all of them, um, until they get to iron. And after they hit iron, it turns out that it's not energetically favorable to create elements heavier than iron. So there tends to be a lot of iron that gets created in the center of stars. And then stars eventually explode and put that material out into space. And that's what was the beginning material of our solar system. So some stars around us that long ago exploded seeded our solar system with a bunch of iron. And so, and there would be a lot of it. So that's how we know that there's iron. At the center of earth. It's basically it's a bunch of other pieces of information that lead us to think that's the only reasonable answer for what's at the center. The fourth one I will say is um, geochemically this is going to be a little technical but when we look at what rocks we have that we do see at the surface of earth um, we can see that, yeah, there's a little bit of iron in some of them. And if we think about what happens to these rocks as they get heated up, for example, and melt, we would expect most of the iron to go to the center of the earth um, when the earth was melted. So it makes sense that there's iron at the center of the earth.
2: Um, I love that that explanation because I think it demonstrated what your book does really beautifully, which is kind of show all these different because we can't voyage to the center of the earth. We have to right. stack up all these different types of evidence. And one of the things you mentioned was sort of the mass of the planet. And I the other great demonstration of this kind of scientific reasoning is this question that you like to ask, which is, how do you weigh a planet? <laughs>
3: Mhm mhm. So yeah, how would you how do you weigh favorite. Mars,
2: you know? Yeah.
3: Yeah, that's one of my favorite questions is how, how do we actually know the masses of all these planets because we don't have scales we can go stick them on or anything. And that's we're very fortunate to have um Kepler's laws which tell us something about how massive an object is based on what is rotating around it, the speed of what is rotating around it. So the fact that uh, Mars has two moons, these tiny moons Phobos and Deimos, uh their orbital characteristics, the fact that how long it takes for them to orbit tells us something about the mass of the object they're orbiting. So that's how we learned Mars's mass, Earth's mass, Mm. uh, most of the planet's mass. The only ones that are a problem for this are Venus and Mercury because they don't have moons. So we actually had to wait for asteroids to get near them or send our own satellites to them uh, to do the orbital motions to figure out how massive they were.
2: We will come back to why you're a Venus hater shortly. Uh, But uh, but first, uh, Phil writes in to say, my six-year-old daughter Riley has a question. She always sees pictures of the planets going around in circles, orbits around the sun, and she wants to know if the planets go around their orbits, quote, flat like on a plate, like on the same plane, or if they circle the sun on different planes.
3: Oh, that is such a great question. So the answer is mostly they go around flat like on the plate on a plate so all the planets orbit in the same direction around the sun and roughly in the same plane so as if they were on a plate um there are you know some are a little bit above or a little bit below the plate but roughly all um the same uh pluto for example is one of these that's got a little bit of a tilt. It's a little bit outside of the plane, but again, then again, it's also not a planet. So that's that mm-hmm. can kind of explain that. So,
2: <laughs> Why do they orbit in the same direction?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. And this tells us something about how planets formed. So we started, our whole solar system started as this ball of gas and dust that started collapsing in on itself. And it had a little bit of rotation. And so when it's collapsing and rotating, it actually had to flatten out so the start of our solar system was like this proto-sun at the center starting to grow and this flat disk of gas and dust surrounding it. And all of that material was rotating in the same direction around the sun. And so as the planets formed, uh, they all this material was still rotating around in the same direction. So in the end, you end up with stuff all rotating in the same direction. That's so cool.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I want to talk about a, a beautiful connection that you made in this book between kind of the innards of a planet like our planet specifically and our biosphere. And we mm-hmm. talked about the, the core earlier and it's the earth's interior motion that produces the, our, our magnetic, uh, sp- this magnetic sphere that surrounds the earth. Right. So like, how, how does that work?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's really important to remember how much everything that we love about the surface of the planet is actually due to stuff happening inside the planet. So the magnetic field you talk about, uh, in Earth's iron core, uh, there's a liquid layer in there. And that liquid layer is churning around because the planet's trying to remove heat. And liquid iron is a great electrical conductor, so it generates this magnetic field. And the magnetic field penetrates all the way through the planet and surrounds us. And this magnetic field is so important to making Earth a lovely habitable place because it can protect us from these high energy particles that come from the sun and from cosmic rays. So one of the reasons we have such a nice livable environment on the surface of the Earth is because of our magnetic field. And we wouldn't have a magnetic field if it weren't for this process happening 2,000 miles below our feet uh, in the core of the Earth. Interesting.
2: And it's also, um, I want to point out to people too, sometimes there's a piece of information, like misinformation floating around on the internet, right, about what creates the Earth's magnetic field, right? And it's, people think it's from the spinning of the Earth or something?
3: Yeah, that's a common misunderstanding, right? So yes, Mm. the earth is spinning. Yes, the core is spinning. But the magnetic field is actually created. It needs some motions, but the spinning motion is not it. What it needs is these bubbling, churning, twisting motions that you might expect. Let's say you have a pot of water on the stove uh, and you turn on the heat and you start seeing that rolling motion you have in the pot. That's the kind of motions happening in the cores of planets like earth that's creating the the magnetic field. Mm,
2: Cool. Thanks so much. Uh, we're talking about the inner workings of the solar system with Dr. Sabina Stanley, professor of planetary science at Johns Hopkins, author of a new book, What's Hidden Inside Planets. We'd love to hear from you if you could go somewhere in our solar system. Where would you go? Maybe one of Jupiter's moons, Saturn's rings. What questions do you have about the formation, of the solar system, and the planets in it? You can uh, send us an email, forum at kqed.org, or give us a call, 866-733-6786. Let's go to Lynn in San Francisco.
5: Hi, Lynn. Hello.
2: Welcome to the show.
5: Thank you. Do oh, you want me ahead. to ask the yeah. question Yeah, did you have a question? Yeah, yes. go ahead. Yes. Um, I've heard that the theory that there was a theory called um, uh, Worlds in Collision, I guess, about um, that the moon was formed by a collision between Venus and the Earth, and that, the, at, that at that collision, uh, the chunk of the Earth...
3: Uh, mm-hmm went into space and became the moon. Is that theory still around?
2: Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Lynn.
3: So it is the case that a collision formed the moon, but it wasn't with Venus. So Venus is a very happy planet, never collided with the Earth. It's far away from us. Um, but very early, about 4.5 billion years ago, an object that was about the size of Mars, we sometimes call it theia that's the name given to this object, had an impact with Earth. So it kind of hit it along its side in a glancing way. Uh, And the Earth absorbed most of Theia, but some material from both Theia and from Earth's mantle, the outer part of Earth, um, got kicked off the Earth and put into orbit around the Earth. And that eventually coalesced to form the moon. So yes, there was a collision, but it wasn't with Venus.
2: So interesting. Um, Let's go to a moon question here. Steven in San Francisco, welcome.
5: My question is uh, relating to the moon. I'm a retired uh, scientist from the Harvard College Observatory of 50 years ago. And at that time, research was done uh, sending radio waves to the moon and measuring reflections. This was done by Dr. Winfield Salisbury. And he predicted that there was uh, subsurface water on the moon. Has any research been done since then, including visits to the moon, to confirm that?
2: Hey, thanks, Stephen. Appreciate that question.
3: Yeah, that's a great question. And the answer is yes. So we can actually use radar um, to look at, uh, we basically bounce radar signals off of the moon and we look into see where we might see evidence of really shiny surfaces or flat surfaces um, that could be ice. Uh, And there's other ways to do it as well. But yes, we have discovered water ice on the moon. Um, Most of it that we see is either just at the surface or just under the surface, right? So very near the surface, it's frozen. Uh, And interestingly, we find a lot of it in the polar regions of the moon in craters. The problem with having ice on the moon We think of the moon as a really cold place, and it is as long as the sun isn't directly looking at you, right? But when you're at high noon on the moon, the temperature, you don't have an atmosphere on the moon, the temperature gets really hot. So any water would kind of evaporate away, sublimate away. Uh, But it turns out there are these craters at the poles of the moon that never see the sun. They're in permanent shadow. And because there's no atmosphere, they stay really, really cold. And so we've found pockets of ice on the surface of the moon, in these uh, sort of shadowed crater regions, mostly in the polar regions.
2: So interesting. Um, Let's move a little bit to some of the uh, outer planets, gas giant here in particular. Rick writes, I'd love to be on a moon of Saturn so I could look out my window and see Saturn and its rings. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the rings. Um, what, What might surprise people about Saturn's rings?
3: So first of all, I have to say that my answer would have been identical to this answer <laughs> of where I want to be. I want to be on a moon looking at Saturn's rings. So let me tell you about these rings, right? Uh, they look spectacular from a telescope, right? And and they look even more spectacular as you get close to them. So you can imagine that these rings are made up of these things that are maybe pebble-sized all the way to boulder size, right? So like inches to meters size, mostly pure water ice. Um, that are all in an incredibly thin, thin, thin um, uh, plane. Like how
2: thin are we talking?
3: So the uh, imagine a sheet of paper. If you were looking at the rings, the width to the thickness of the sheet of paper is similar to that of Saturn's rings. Wow. So although, although the rings are like tens of thousands of miles across, they're, in, they're almost like just a single, less than a few meters or, or so wide or thick. So they're incredibly thin. But what I think is surprising and what I love about the rings and I would really love to see up close is the fact that there are waves in these rings. So they aren't just static sitting there that you can actually see the rings kind of bubble up and down in a wave pattern, just like you would on an ocean. Um, There are all kinds of different waves that occur. Some of those waves actually come from the fact that there are motions deep inside Saturn that uh, the waves feel the gravity effect of. And so Mm -hmm. they get influenced by that. So we actually have sort of like kind of like the way the rings are a bell, but the ringing of the bell, the way you ring it, is from the inside of the planet. And that causes all these vibrations to occur throughout the rings.
2: Would they be moving at the speed that you could actually see them moving? Or would you just notice that over time, if you took a time-lapse, there would be like a ripple?
3: You could see them moving. So we have, and we have images from spacecraft. So for example, the Cassini spacecraft, which was orbiting Saturn until about 2017 Right. They could take pictures of the rings over different times. And so you could see uh, the how the rings had changed over time.
2: No way. Yeah. That is so cool. <laughs> um, uh, returning to uh, to Earth, um, I wanted to ask about because I think people sometimes think that we've been able to drill further into the Earth than we have. I went through a you know brief Kola borehole fascination phase, mm-hmm. this like a mm-hmm. borehole that was uh, drilled by uh, Russian scientists. Um, How far have we gotten sort of as a percentage of how much, you know, Earth there is?
3: Right. Great question. So the uh, deep borehole is still the deepest we've ever drilled inside the Earth. It's about eight miles, if I'm remembering the number correctly in in miles units. Mm -hmm. Um, But the radius of the Earth, uh, if you think about it, it's about 4,000 miles. Mm-hmm. So we have it's like the equivalent of like the skin of a peach relative to the thickness of the peach. So we barely scratch the surface when we try to drill inside the planet. Yeah,
2: That's amazing. And that's yeah. just because basically the drill melts or the rock yeah. doesn't hold at the bottom or all, uh, both?
3: Yeah, this is one of my favorite things about studying the insides of planets the conditions inside planets are so extreme that anything you expect at the surface won't happen down there. So as soon as you're going deep inside the planet, the temperature is rising incredibly, the pressures are rising incredibly, and materials just behave completely differently. So yeah, your equipment's going to melt. The rocks are going to kind of crush you uh, through pressure and stuff like that. It's just not a fun environment to be in.
2: Mm, So Interesting. I mean, it also, how much does the temperature go up, like, as you as you go down? Like, what's the ratio? It's like a mile <laughs> and, like, 70 degrees Fahrenheit or something like that? Um,
3: it's probably high. Yeah, it's it's close to that. It's, and But it changes as you go down. But let's say by the time you get to the core mantle boundaries, so you're about 2,000 miles below the surface of the Earth, the temperature is in the thousands of degrees. Mm. So it gets really hot as you go down. So and why? By the,
2: why then is the scent the very center of the core
3: solid oh i'm so glad you asked this question <laughs> this is one of my favorite features of the earth so we are used to the following fact you take a material let's say water um you cool it down eventually it freezes when it reaches the freezing temperature right um but it turns out that the other way you can freeze something or or melt something is with pressure so you take something and you put it under higher and higher pressure it will eventually freeze Uh, and so in the center of the earth, the iron has a melting temperature or a freezing temperature, but it depends on the pressure. And it turns out that the pressure is so high at the center of the earth that even though the temperature is higher, it's frozen because it's pressure frozen at the very center. Mm. So it's even, even though it's hotter at the center, it's the pressure so high, it's pressure frozen.
5: That's
2: so amazing. They just literally the the molecules cannot move because there's so yeah. much pressure bearing down stuck on them. Together.
3: The... Yeah. That's exactly. So they cool. just get stuck together. We're talking about the
2: inner workings of the planets in our solar system with Dr. Sabina Stanley, professor of planetary science at Johns Hopkins and the author of the new book, What's Hidden Inside Planets? We'll get to more of your calls and questions after the break. We wanna hear from you, what questions do you have about the planets of our solar system or their how they work on the inside? Or if you could go somewhere in our solar system, where would you go? Saturn's ring's already taken, you need a new answer. You can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Find us on our social channels, digital community on Discord, or give us a call, 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal, stay
0: tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera,
2: welcome back to forum i'm alexis madrigal we're talking about the inner workings of the planet in our solar system with dr sabina stanley she's got a new book out called what's hidden inside planets and she's a professor of planetary science at johns hopkins has published papers about just about every planet in the solar system except for venus i think right that's right <laughs> so if you've got questions she's got answers um let's bring in eid uh in berkeley welcome
5: Good morning. Before I say, I would like to know if your guest is aware of the doomsday asteroid above us uh, that's supposed to come very close to Earth, Ever 13, uh, 2029. 20, that is <clears throat> more than five years. It's big, it's really big. It's a little bit less than a mile, but this thing is going to come so close to Earth that it is going to be seen with naked eye. Second point I'd like to make what is the reason Venus is called Earth's evil twin is because it is very hot. Lead mm-hmm. melts in Venus. The atmosphere in Venus is about 100 times as heavy as the atmosphere in Earth. The Russian successfully sent uh, some kind of spacecraft some decades ago, mm-hmm. 1970s. I believe that the craft lasted for less than a second, enough to just take a picture <laughs> of the foot of the craft. And then it melted. Mm-hmm. The atmosphere... And the thing now, why I that question is very important is because I think we're heading that direction. I have no doubt with the amount of carbon dioxide and methane, which is 90 times as effective in global warming, with all of the animals we eat, we are going, going that direction. And by the way, I did teach astronomy, I'm a graduate from Cal, mm-hmm. a physics a PhD. And uh, really, I think the more beautiful guests like yours educate people, the more. Mm-hmm. More likely, we may survive. I am very, very pessimistic. If you have a comment about yeah. Apophis, which, by the way, named after the ancient Egyptian god of destruction and terror, Is that what hey, yeah. Apophis. Mean? We That's All right, we will go. go
2: get, we'll go get, in um, order. We'll go Apophis, okay. and then yep. we will do uh, Venus and what it tells us about global warming here on Earth.
3: Yeah, the great question. So, first of all, about Apophis. Um, Yes, there are asteroids that are called near-Earth asteroids. They tend to be, um, the ones we worried about are the ones that are sort of in the hundreds of meters uh, size. And there are people that are constantly looking at what the orbits of these asteroids are like. Is there any chance that they are going to impact Earth? Now, when Apophis was looked at um, a while back, I, I can't remember exactly when, um, there was a chance, if we, when you looked at what the orbit was, that there was a chance it was going to get very close to Earth. But then a radar observation campaign started in 2021 uh, to more, care, more precisely analyze the orbit, and they found from that that there's absolutely no risk of Apophis impacting Earth um, this century. I'm so, glad because it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. if it's so if April thirteenth, twenty twenty-nine.
2: It would be very sad <laughs> yeah. to have yeah. uh, an apocalypse on your birthday. You know, yeah. That's my birthday.
3: <laughs> and and this is the amazing thing. It's so important for us to um, observe asteroids that are near us and see how their orbits change to to figure out these things. Hmm. Um, so there's we're we're fine with Apophis. At, we are there. NASA and other governments are very carefully monitoring all the asteroids that are near earth in some description mm. or other and carefully checking what is the chance of impact of any of these things. Yeah. And right now, as you know, we are fine with, with everything that we know of at the moment.
2: All right. Let's talk Venus, which is also yeah. a great question. Um, right. I mean, what, why do we think Venus got so hot?
3: Yeah. Great question. So Venus, uh, turns out to be a case of just slightly different from Earth. So because Venus is a little bit closer to the sun, the temperature there is a little bit hotter. And uh, that we think combined with the fact that uh, it's a little bit of a smaller planet meant that the conditions are just slightly different. So let me explain how um, Venus got so hot. Um, Our atmosphere, we have carbon dioxide, we're a nitrogen based atmosphere, about 70% of our atmosphere is nitrogen, then we have some carbon dioxide and oxygen, other things. Now on Venus, uh, although we have a greenhouse effect on Earth, Venus had what was called a runaway greenhouse effect, where essentially um, carbon dioxide kept building up more and more in the atmosphere. Uh, And when you have more and more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, uh, you get a greenhouse effect so that the heat that we get from the sun gets trapped near the surface of the Earth, making it hotter and hotter. That caused Venus, for example, to lose all of its water because the water molecules in the atmosphere got so hot, they essentially broke apart, and hydrogen can get um, escaped from the uh, atmosphere. So there's no water on Venus, and so yes, it is a horrible place. Um, it suffered a runaway greenhouse effect. Um, Earth is in a green. Earth has a greenhouse effect. Um, people study whether or not we have the possibility of getting to a runaway greenhouse effect, and yes, that's a possibility, right? But what's really important is that. Uh, we are doing a lot of, there are a lot of scientists right now studying the Earth's climate, studying the Earth's um, environment, and really trying to understand what are these uh, kind of tipping points of when our conditions would change significantly. And we're seeing them change now, right? We are seeing the effects of climate change happen every day, right now. And we do have to, do something, we have to change our use of um, uh, fossil fuels, we have to change our reliance on on these types of energy sources so that we can reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere so that we don't end up, I don't know if we'll end up being Venus, but we will end up with a very different climate situation mm-hmm. than currently, and that would be negative for everyone.
2: Yeah. A um, Couple of follow-ups from earlier things that we've talked about from listeners. Sean writes in to say, how much of our moon, and for that matter, the Earth, are made up of the Mars-sized object that struck our planet to create the moon?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. Can we tell so the some, difference?
2: Could we tell them apart?
3: That's that's an awesome question. So we don't know if we could tell them apart right now. If, if You could imagine that if this Mars-sized object mixed in with most of Earth and mixed in with the moon, how do you tell if what was regular Earth versus not? Now, there was a very recent paper, okay? So I'm putting this out there as it's a new idea hypothesis, not confirmed yet. But it turns out that there's some material that's at the bottom of Earth's mantle, so this is right above the core, um, that looks a little different than the other material. And some people have done uh, simulations, computer simulations, to show that if you had Theia crash into Earth, that some of the material from Theia would have gone down to the core mantle boundary and could have gotten stuck down there. Mm. So it's possible that there are regions deep inside the Earth that are the remnants of this Thea impact that happened long ago. But this is a very new idea and still needs a lot of work to be done on it.
2: So cool. We have uh, another follow-up question on this uh, topic. Uh, Mahadevan, welcome. Hello, can
5: you hear me? Yeah, sure can, go ahead. Thank you to your guest for an absolutely brilliant conversation. The question is about orbital mechanics. The Earth must have been in one orbit, and then one fine day this collision happens, and a big chunk of it spins out and goes into orbit around it. If the orbit was then perturbed, mm. then the temperature on the Earth would have eventually been different than it might have been. This is a reach. But do we owe our existence to the fact that the moon was created? <laughs> is that why we're in the Goldilocks zone? Or is that not an important uh, perturbation?
2: Oh, I love that question. i yeah, That's a really great question.
3: Yeah. I love this question too. So I think we don't know enough about um, what direction this body was coming in that hit the earth to understand how much it uh, impacted our orbit. A lot of the times, the things we get hit with can actually be in very similar orbits to our own, just at a different kind of little perturbation to them. So if something was very close to our own orbit and hit us, then maybe it wouldn't have affected us so much but if it came from a completely kind of out of nowhere out of left field and hit us then there could have been some impact on the orbit um, a little bit and again this happened so long ago you know 4.5 6 Mm -hmm. billion years ago uh that it's hard to know where earth would have been ended up if that impact had not happened but it's Mm -hmm. a great question
2: it is fascinating, too, just to think about those initial conditions for life, Of course, how we yeah. consider habitability to be you know roughly what we've grown up with, requiring, you know, liquid water, requiring a certain temperature. Although we know that there are places on earth where life is surviving uh, in all these different ways, how likely do you think it is that there's at least, you know, say, microbial life somewhere else in our solar system?
3: I think it's incredibly likely. Really? So yeah, Um, and if I were to go look for it, I would go to a, there are sort of three moons that I would go to, Mm -hmm. to look for life. And luckily NASA and other space agencies are going right there (laughs) for the same reason. So this wasn't my idea. Um, But first of all, there's a, a moon of Jupiter called Europa. And Europa is this icy moon. It's got a ice shell surrounding it, but we know that inside the moon is a global liquid water ocean. So we know that water is an important ingredient for life as we know it, for how life formed on Earth, water ends up being important. We know that you have to have complex uh, carbon-based molecules of some sort, and there's signs of that there too. And we know that it's really important to have kind of a stable environment, like some sort of solid surface that the molecules can kind of grow on. And so underneath the ocean in Europa is a rocky interior. So Europa seems to have all the ingredients. Uh, Europa also, because it's covered by this ice shell, would have a lot of protection from those harmful solar wind particles and cosmic rays that, for example, our magnetic field helps shield us from. Uh, another moon, we go out to Saturn, you've got um, Enceladus, which is very similar to Europa in terms of the idea. you got an ice shell and you got a liquid water ocean underneath. But Enceladus is very tiny. It's much smaller. But it's a place that I think would be interesting to look to. Yeah. Um, but the, to me, the coolest place to go look for... Uh, potential life, is a moon of Saturn that's uh, called Titan. Mm. So Titan is the coolest, first of all, is the coolest place in the solar system because uh, its surface, if you were to stand on the surface, um, the atmospheric pressure is kind of similar to Earth's atmospheric pressure. It's about one and a half Earth atmosphere. So so the pressure is pretty high, uh, but not too high, not Venus high. Uh, And the gravity is really low. And so when you have, you could, you could could stick cardboard on your arms and fly. So (laughs) so it's the perfect place for flight. So that's just a really cool fact about it. But the surface of Titan is covered in what we call hydrocarbons. So these are complex molecules made up of carbon and and oxygen and hydrogen and stuff like that. The things that we think are the building blocks of, of life. Um, We know that there's liquid water inside Titan. There's a liquid ocean in there as well. And we know there are energy sources, um, heat sources as well. So Titan seems to have all these ingredients. And it's really exciting to think of this new mission called Dragonfly, which is going to fly to Titan. Uh, And it's basically an octocopper. It's got eight uh, uh, helicopter wings, and it's going to land on the surface, do a bunch of science, then fly up, look around, go to another location, land again, do a bunch of science. So we're going to be able to really sample in place uh, different environments on Titan Uh, And I think that's going to be a really big opportunity to look for signs of life.
2: That definitely was the coolest sounding mission of the of the ones (laughs) in your book. Not that they all don't sound awesome because they are sending things, you know, uh, unimaginable distances (laughs) into alien environments. (laughs) But I mean, basically dropping a drone onto the surface of uh, another planet's moon. That seemed amazing. Um, Yeah. uh, Let's bring in uh, John from Concord.
5: Welcome. Hi. uh, My question is, what makes uranus blue and what would we encounter in at its
2: core mm. thank you oh, good one thank you john
3: first of all thank you for asking for about one of my favorite planets <laughs> so uranus and neptune are both they both have this blue uh, hue to them and that's actually because although their atmospheres are mostly hydrogen and helium which are colorless um they have um, some amounts of water ammonia and methane and it's those materials that make the color the blue color So um, Uranus and Neptune have much more water and ammonia, methane, things we call ices than the other planets. And so when you think about what goes on inside the planets, it gets really cool. Because if you think of the building blocks of water, ammonia, methane, you've got oxygen, you've got carbon, uh, you got nitrogen, those kinds of things. You say, what happens when you take those materials and put them under really high pressure and temperature? And some cool things happen inside those planets. So let me tell you about two of them. First of all, water. We're used to water this H2O molecule um, that we drink, you know, stuff like that. You put it under high enough pressure and temperature, the oxygen atoms decide to form a lattice. They form like a cube, and the hydrogen atoms just move freely through them. And we call this super ionic water, and it can conduct electricity. So that's a really cool uh, phase of material that happens inside Uranus and Neptune. The second thing is that the carbon that's in things like methane – As the pressure gets higher, you can form diamond, just like we do on the Earth. This is how diamonds form on Earth, too. Uh, But as you go deeper and deeper inside Neptune, uh, the pressures and temperature conditions get to the point where the diamond would actually melt. And so you'd have these diamond seas inside Neptune and Uranus. And diamond has this weird property that water ice on the surface of the Earth also does, where the frozen a uh, form of water ice is just a little bit less dense than the water so the you can float ice on water and the same thing is true for diamond so if you had this diamond sea you would have diamond icebergs floating on there so that's what might be happening at the interior of Uranus and Neptune just based on what we know about these materials and how they behave under those pressures and temperatures so
2: Okay. I want to do a speed run here through some final questions. Joe uh, over on Discord asks, how much do we know about what is between the last planet and the edge of our solar system?
3: Oh, great question. So between Neptune and the edge of our solar system, we know that there are millions of small bodies. So we call these Kuiper belt objects, Pluto is one of them. We know that Pluto is one of the bigger ones and we know about others roughly about Pluto size out there. Um, but they're also small, tiny icy particles, things that became comets when they become comets when they come into the solar system. So there's lots of material there. We eventually get this giant sphere of material, um, about 50,000 um, Earth units from the sun away uh, that w- we're basically just surrounded by this mm. cloud of, of comets. Um, out to the end of the solar system. So cool.
2: Another listener writes, how is it that planets and moons are formed by random collisions but are so seemingly perfectly round?
3: That's a great question. So not all of them are round. So most of the moons, you have to be pretty big in order to become round. And the answer has to do, again, with pressure and gravity. If you get big enough that your gravitational pull is so big, then everything gets pulled to the center and you basically get crunched up into a sphere. Mm.
2: It's amazing. Um... (laughs) BZ writes in to say, my ancestors are from the region uh, near Toronto where the guests grew up. Is there any study of the indigenous perspective on the stories of the origins of the land uh, where you grew up?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, most of Canada has uh, many groups of indigenous uh, peoples living there. And uh, for, for example, the town Sudbury where I grew up, uh, many of ind- indigenous groups actually used the resources from the impact long before they were they were used um, by um, Western civilizations coming uh, to do mining here. So there's there's lots of um, examples of that.
2: Mm. Um, here we go. Dave writes: What do we believe the causes for Venus's retrograde rotation? A collision? How long ago? Or does Venus's extreme environment make determining the cause almost hopeless?
3: Yeah, it's hard. There are a couple of exa- there are a couple of reasons that I've heard. One of them is the collision example. That's probably the easiest way to explain it is that Venus just got hit a few times, and it kind of knocked it over into this retrograde orbit. There's some other theory out there, and I admit I can't kind of give you the full details of it, but it basically has to do with interactions between the thick atmosphere and the planet, kind of like twisting it around eventually. But uh, I think impacts is the most likely answer.
2: Amazing. Um, Last thing. There have been a couple questions about the latest on Earth's magnetic poles and how they might Mm -hmm. flip.
3: Yeah. So Earth right now, our magnetic poles are aligned in a certain way. The magnetic north pole is actually at the geographic south pole at the moment. Um, But we know from the rock record on Earth that the Earth's magnetic field has flipped polarity. Uh, The last time it flipped polarity was 750,000 years ago. Um, It's not a periodic thing. It happens randomly. Um, But if you average all the ones we know about, they roughly happen every 500,000 years or so. So in some ways, we're kind of overdue (laughs) for reversal. Um, But we don't know.
2: Yeah. We have been talking about the inner workings of our planet and the other parts of the solar system with Dr. Sabina Stanley, professor of planetary science at Johns Hopkins and the author of the book, What's Hidden Inside Planets. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thanks so much. This was fun.
2: Totally delightful. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Thank you to all of our listeners for your calls and comments. Stay tuned for another hour of the show ahead with guest host Grace Wan.
4: Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation,